0: The Bible reading this morning can be found on page 1169 of the Blue Pew Bibles, and it's taken from Galatians chapter 2, starting to read at verse 11 through to verse 21. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: As we stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've just sung, We do pray that your word would be a light to each of us this morning. Father, this is a deeply challenging passage, but, Father, as it deals with conflict, so it comes on to deal with the great and glorious truth that we are justified by faith and not by works. Father, speak to us of those truths, we pray, and give us the wisdom to discern and to reject anything which is not from you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do please be seated. So, for any of you needing the translator code, it's there Quebec Tango Papa Romeo Indigo, if you want it like that. I have to say, it isn't every week that I get to follow a bishop into the pulpit, albeit with a week's break between it, nor to preach. Thank you, brother on a passage that's so challenging, or at the same time so relevant to so many of the issues that face the Church, particularly the Church in the West today. It's very tempting, isn't it, to think that rifts, divisions, controversies, arguments are the defining characteristics of the modern Church. And as we're all very, very painfully aware, there are many controversies that are threatening to tear the Church apart both here in this country and across the globe, and which are a huge distraction from our mission to share the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. But very sadly, all of those things have been a feature of the life of the church from the very earliest days of the Christian church. And just in case we think they're a problem that besets only the Christian church... You don't have to read long through the pages of the Old Testament to find numerous examples of rifts and splits, controversies, dissension, disagreements, arguments. And very sadly each of these instances serves as a reminder of the fact that all of us, whether those of us here in church this morning in Hartford or who are gathering in churches across the land or across the globe today or those who have been part of the church down the ages, we are all human and with being human We're sinners, and it's ultimately the sin that lies at the root of all the heresies, dissensions, and everything else that besets the church. Yet the message of Galatians is about the truth that sets us free. So, after a break of a couple of weeks, we return to our series of studies in Hall's Letters of the Church in Galatia, and just by way of a very quick recap, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of Paul's letters, with most scholars dating it around AD 48, 49, so about 15 years after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, and critically a year or so before the council meeting in Jerusalem, which took place in AD 50, which we shall refer to, we shall touch upon as we go on this morning. Paul was writing to the church in Galatia to counter some really serious false teaching. False teaching that was leading these early Gentile converts to Christianity away and threatening to pull the whole church apart. Because as Paul writes in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, I am astonished, he says, that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And in the remainder of Galatians chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2, Paul is at pains to demonstrate to his readers how the gospel he proclaims is one and the same gospel proclaimed by Peter and the Jerusalem church, and how this has been recognized by the apostles in Jerusalem, and how they recognized that Paul had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised Just as Peter was, his main focus was to the circumcised, to Jewish people who had come to believe in Christ. And it's this which brings us to what was at the heart of the conflicts that so impacted the early church. Just how much, just how much should Gentile, that's non-Jewish converts, to Christianity like us, how much should we have to conform to the external observances of the Jewish ceremonial laws and, especially amongst all of those laws, the requirement for all males to be circumcised? Whilst the external debate was about whether or not Gentile converts have to conform to a particular set of rules, at its heart, at its heart, was the fundamental question of whether we're saved by works, by obedience to a set of rules and regulations, or by faith. A question that racked the early church and ultimately split the church at the Reformation. In the passage we're considering this morning, we have a real face-off between Peter and Paul, the two pillars of the leadership of the early church who were seemingly at loggerheads over this most fundamental of issues. We might ask why this matters why are we considering it this morning? Why are we devoting time to it? But, brothers and sisters, this question lies at the absolute heart of our faith and our understanding of how we're saved. It is of the utmost importance, the utmost significance. So if you've closed your Bibles, can I encourage you, if you've got paper copies, to open them to Galatians chapter 2. Well, any copy, Galatians chapter 2, but if you've got a a, a paper copy, it's on page 1169. We're going to be jumping back a bit into Acts as well, because events in Acts very much are interleaved with these. So we're going to be going a little bit backwards and forwards, but it will be useful to have your Bibles open this morning. Our passage this morning splits neatly into two parts. It splits into verses 11 to 14, which is that huge bust-up that there was between Paul and Peter, and then the second half, where Paul focuses on that great glorious truth that we are justified by faith and not by works. So there is a little bit of overlap in the middle between those two sections in verses, 16 and verses 15 and 16. Now we're going to be covering a lot of ground this morning, considering a number of theological principles But a true understanding of these matters is the absolute bedrock of our faith. Knowing that we're justified by faith alone and not by works should be the very greatest comfort to all of us gathered here this morning. And as with many who've gone from this place to go home to be with their Lord, it was the knowledge of that truth that sustained our dear sister Ruth throughout her life. And was with her as she went home to be with her Lord and Saviour last weekend. So this is what strengthens us, what comforts us, what encourages us through the dark and difficult and challenging times. But we need to begin this morning by considering what was behind that dispute between Peter and Paul that Paul describes in verses 11 to 14. Because here we have Paul openly and publicly confronting Peter over his behavior in a really tense situation that surfaced some really fundamental issues that were in danger of splitting the early church apart. So come with me now as we head to 1st century Antioch. 1st century Antioch which lies in modern-day Turkey. It's, it's, it's right up there. You can see it uh, there, Syria and Antioch. Uh, I think there's a pointer on here, but I can't find it. Um, so a couple of hundred miles north of up the coast um, from Jerusalem there, um, in just in modern-day Turkey, but at the time, very much part of the Roman province of Syria. Not, don't confuse it with Antioch in Pisidia, which was further over in modern-day Turkey there. And at the time... Turkey was a great trade center, very much influenced by Greek culture and thought of as well as being a key city in the Roman Empire. Many saw it as sort of Rome East, uh, a better center for control of the whole of the eastern end of the Mediterranean there, um, rather than Alexandria, which was a way down in Egypt and a bit harder to get to. In seeking to understand the cause of the argument that rages here, we need to understand something of the origin and growth of the early Christian church. At the risk of stating the obvious, Christianity grew out of Judaism. We, along with Messianic Jews, believe Jesus was and is the long-promised Messiah. The fulfilment of that promise made to David a thousand or so years earlier, that another king would come, a king who was going to rule on David's throne, a greater David, whose rule would last forever. But as we read the gospel narratives, Jesus was rejected time and again by the Jewish establishment who turned against him for doing things like healing people. The catch was, he healed them on the Sabbath. And they were so angered by Jesus' apparent disregard for the commandments, they couldn't see that the good he'd done, it was just so offset by their focus on observing the commands there. And so it was that the Jewish religious establishment, they set their hearts on seeing Jesus done away with. It was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who whipped up the crowd to demand Jesus be crucified on that first Good Friday. And that rejection was widespread, but not universal. And many did come to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Luke tells us in Acts, for example, that 3,000 were added to their number on the day of Pentecost. So that's 3,000. Jews who came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And that was just on the day of Pentecost, following Peter's great sermon, as the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And as we read through the early chapters of the book of Acts, we read how in the weeks and months that followed the day of Pentecost, the church grew and spread, if really as an organic part of Judaism, with Peter as the focus for that mission, which was to the Jews primarily proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. As the number of Jews who came to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah grew rapidly, so the religious authorities became increasingly alarmed by this new movement, with Judaism seeing it as a threat to their status and position, and so they do what any group does when it starts to feel threatened. They start to persecute. They start to persecute Jewish converts to Christianity, and foremost amongst those persecutors was Saul. It was Saul on the road to Damascus, which indicates just how far Christianity had spread amongst the Jewish communities scattered across the eastern end of the Mediterranean, in part driven by the persecution that broke out after the martyrdom of um, Stephen. Sorry, mine went blank there, of Stephen um, there. And it was while Saul, as he then was, was on that road to Damascus that he had that dramatic encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And Paul, as Saul came to be known, went from persecuting Jews who had acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah to being the apostle to the Gentile world. Although again, as we read through Acts and Paul's letters in there, we do see how whenever arriving in a new town, Paul would always start by preaching in the synagogue if there was one there. But sticking with the book of Acts for a minute, the book begins by focusing on Peter's mission to the Jews, but moves on to focus and records Paul's mission to the Gentiles. But as the the number of Gentile converts grew, we come to that vexed and thorny question of whether Gentile converts did or did not have to observe all of the Jewish legal requirements, and particularly that requirement for all males to be circumcised. See, for a devout Jew, righteousness, being in a right relationship with God, is about perfect obedience to the law in every aspect, including the external sign of circumcision for males. And that still holds true today. In terms of that obedience to the law, I don't know if any of you caught that lovely little piece during the coverage of the coronation where they interviewed the chief rabbi. And he was walking to the coronation service in Westminster Abbey. Because, of course, the service was on a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. And that was after he'd had what he described as a sleepover. at I think it was St. James's Palace. um, So that he would be within a Sabbath day's walk of the Abbey. And thus didn't need to travel by car, which would have broken the Fourth Commandment. And I thought that was very sweet, very touching there. But given... How Jesus came as the long-promised Messiah. It was only natural that those from a Jewish heritage who recognized Jesus as the Messiah would continue to want to observe all the rules and regulations that had shaped everything they'd done before and which had influenced the whole of Judaism for two millennia or so previously. That observance of the law was the only way to be right with God to use a very silly analogy, but one which demonstrates how difficult it can be to change the habits of the lifetime. If I'm in one of those countries that persists in driving on the wrong side of the road, that's as opposed to those countries where you drive on any bit of road that isn't already occupied by a car, a scooter, a motorbike, a person or an animal. There are, sadly, some nations that do persist on driving on the wrong side of the road. I don't know you'd find it the same, but I find it impossible to cross the road without a final look to the right before you step off the pavement, isn't it? Because haven't we all, we've had it drummed into us, look right, look left, look right again, if all's clear, you cross the road. Good old Tufty. That's been drummed into me since childhood. It's what keeps me safe crossing the road. And I can't, just can't, break that habit even though the world has changed and I know the traffic's coming from the wrong way, and the car from the left is going to hit me first, so I really should be looking left but I can't, it's so drummed into me, you've got to look right, you've got to look right. And that's a little bit of what we're seeing here this morning with those Jewish concepts, not in terms of road safety but that utterly ingrained following of a set of rules including circumcision. And that brings us to Galatians chapter two and those events in Antioch. So in verse eleven, which we've got two. There we go. Paul tells us that Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, and what does he say? He says, "I opposed him to his face." That's pretty. You know, that's as blunt as it gets, isn't it? I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned strong words and why so for before certain men came from james he used to eat with the gentiles but when he arrived he began to draw back and separate himself from the gentiles because why what why because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group this is peter the rock that great stalwart of the faith there, that pillar of the early church, was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So why were they so terrifying? The implication here, although Paul doesn't tell us, is that Peter had been in Antioch for a while. And up until that time, up until the time these certain men from James, our Lord's brother and leaders of the church in Jerusalem, so they'd come from Jerusalem that couple of hundred miles north up the coast there. Peter had been freely associating with the Gentile converts as well as converts from Judaism. Antioch at the time was a, was a huge melting pot of um, different nationalities. They'd been eating together, and the implication, they'd been sharing both ordinary meals as well as the Lord's Supper. But as soon as these blokes arrived from Jerusalem, from James, Peter had drawn back, separated him, because he was afraid of them. And what was worse is that Peter wasn't alone in doing this. He didn't just behave that way because of a matter of conscience. Such was his status amongst the group there. That many of the other Jews joined in, joined him in what Paul calls this hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray. So we might ask what was so significant about Peter as a Jew sharing a meal with a group of Of Gentiles, you know, often today in the multicultural world that we live in, we may share a meal with people of all sorts of different faiths and none. But sharing a meal with a non Jew was something that a devout Jew just would not do, complete taboo. We see this principle exposed in the early chapters of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 11. When Peter goes up to Jerusalem to explain his actions after he'd shared the gospel with the Gentile centurion Cornelius and his household. We read, and you might like to turn to this in verse 2 of chapter 11 of the book of Acts on page 1105 there. The The apostles and believers throughout Judea heard the Gentiles also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said... You went into the house of uncircumcised men and what did you do? You ate with them. (laughs) It didn't get much worse than that. You sat down and you had a meal with some non-Jews, some non-believers. That was the criticism leveled at Peter, but... As we read on in Acts chapter 11, Peter establishes to the satisfaction of the gathered leaders that he'd been called by God to share the gospel with Gentiles, that God had sealed that by pouring out the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his household. And Peter went on to establish the precedent of eating with Gentiles and had defended it before the circumcised believers in Jerusalem. And after going through everything that happened in one of those biblical understatements we read in verse 18, He says there, when they, that's the circumcised believers, heard this, they had no further objections. And praise God, so saying so even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So Peter had established the principle with the, the, the group in Jerusalem there, the leaders of the church there, that it was okay to share the gospel with, 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 with Gentiles, that it was okay to eat with them. Because that had been part of the argument that was underpinning why Peter had been called back, summoned back to Jerusalem to, to be up before the beak there. But all of that had been sorted. But now, sometimes later in Antioch, Peter, despite having had it affirmed that it was okay to share the gospel, to eat with Gentiles, suddenly steps back from doing these things when these certain men from James arrived in town. And it's this hypocritical behavior that Paul is calling out. Paul puts it like this. When I saw that they, that's Peter and the other Jewish converts, weren't acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Say, look, you're Jew, you're Jewish born and bred, just like I am. You've been living like a Gentile. And now suddenly you're forcing all these extra rules on these gentle convert, Gentile converts. In other words, you're being hypocritical. You're, you're turning your back on all of these things. You know they're right. But just because these people arrive in town, you're changing your tune. We find a bit more insight into this in Acts chapter 15, which is closely linked with these events in Galatians chapter 2. And if you turn briefly to Acts chapter 15 on page 1110 in the Church Bibles, this deals with the aftermath of these events at the Council of Jerusalem, which met to resolve the issue. This took place in in AD, um, AD 50, so a couple of years later. And Paul says... We read in verse 1 of um, Acts chapter 15, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's, that's, this is that same incident. So why did Paul P- confront Peter like this? Was it because they didn't get on? Paul, in some quarters at least, has something of a reputation for being a bit irascible at times. No, it was none of that. Because the principle at stake here was so fundamental. It was the truth of the gospel that was at stake here. For according to these certain people, you could not be saved unless you were circumcised. In other words, salvation is Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus observing all these laws. And Paul is saying an emphatic no. We're saved by faith alone. It was this that was the rallying cry of the reformation. And it's the truth that holds as true today as it ever has done. If we turn briefly back to Acts chapter 15, we saw earlier how these events in Antioch formed the background to the Council of Jerusalem. And then as we read through Acts chapter 15, we discover how Paul and Barnabas, along with some of the others, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, a you know, couple of hundred miles journey there where the matter was debated at length. And we see some of the fault lines begin to appear when we read that. Although some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees So we can see that after Jesus' death and resurrection, there were Pharisees, members of that religious Jewish establishment, whose predecessors had so vehemently opposed Jesus during his lifetime, who had called for his death, had come to believe in Jesus. They were saying the Gentiles must be circumcised. The Gentiles must be required to keep the law of Moses. In Acts chapter 15 we read the apostles and elders met to consider this question. In verse 7, another of those biblical understatements when we read after much discussion. there's a lot of discussion went on in Jerusalem, wasn't there? But what follows is deeply significant to the events in Galatians chapter 2 because Peter stands up, he reaffirms how he'd been called by means of a vision from God to share the gospel with the Gentile centurion Cornelius and his household. Peter realizes the gospel is to share it with Jew and Gentile alike. He goes on to affirm in Acts 15 and verse 8 to say to the council, of God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, Peter says, why do you try to test God? Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we or our ancestors have been able to bear? No, And this is Peter speaking, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter is here a year or two later being absolutely unequivocal in his view that there is no need for Gentiles to comply with the Mosaic law, including circumcision. The letter is then duly sent off to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia that Gentile converts were not to be circumcised, But they were to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from any form of meat strangled, of of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. And in that letter, James distances himself from the men who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch at the beginning and caused all this trouble. And then in the second half of our reading, now moving on, we come to verses 15 to 21 where Paul focuses on the fact that we are saved by faith and not by works. We who are Jews by birth, Paul says, are not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person isn't justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now Paul uses that word justified or justification several times here. It's one of those words we hear a lot in church, but are we sure of its meaning? Justification is a legal term. It's the opposite of condemnation. It's nothing less than to declare someone not guilty. In the biblical setting it's God's gracious act of not only pardoning sinners, but accepting them, regarding them as righteousness, bringing them into a right relationship with him. And as for how we're justified, Paul is absolutely clear. Absolutely clear when he says that we cannot be justified by works of the law, which is obedience to the law of Moses, including circumcision. Millennia of experience had shown that to be impossible, as no one, however hard they tried, could ever perfectly observe the letter of the law. Thankfully, God instituted animal sacrifice whereby the blood of an animal offered as a sacrifice could be substituted for the blood of the sinner as an atonement for sin but these sacrifices had to be offered daily, weekly, monthly, yearly for they were never all sufficient. So does that mean that the law and the commands have no value? Absolutely not and Paul is at pains to make that point especially in his letter to the Romans and he'll come on to deal with it in Galatians as well. What are the law and The commands do. They define right and wrong behavior in God's eyes. If we didn't know that, if we didn't have the law, if we didn't have the commandments, how would we know what's right, what's wrong? Part of the troubles that are affecting society today is that we're losing that sense of right and wrong. The law, as we study it, shows us When we fail to live up to God's requirements, that's called sin. It leads us to convict us of our sinfulness, just as if you're charged with an offence, it's because you've broken a law in there. If we fail to follow God's laws, which we all do, day in, day out, we're convicted of sin. And as we study the law, we should be convic- convicted of our need for forgiveness. Which, as the words of the communion service, which we'll share together in a few moments, remind us, is only found in the death of Jesus as the one perfect, sufficient satisfaction and oblation for our sins once offered. The great and glorious truth of the gospel that Paul is reminding his readers of is that Jew and Gentile alike are justified by Christ who doesn't differentiate on birth. It doesn't matter if we're born Jew or Gentile, Muslim or Sikh. The only way we're saved and brought into a right relationship with God is by faith in Christ and by faith in Christ alone. And in the light of this glorious truth, who are we to differentiate and insist that an extra requirement is placed on those who weren't a Jew by birth when they were saved? Amen. This is the heart of Paul's message here. Moving on, verses 17 and 18 are quite difficult to interpret. We've got a little bit behind on the slides there. We'll come to that in a minute. But if it's seeking to be ju- justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I read what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. The argument Paul's critics were voicing could be paraphrased as, if I am justified by faith rather than by doing good's work, good works, doesn't that just encourage people to, to, to break the law, behave badly, give God a bit more to forgive? He wants to forgive us, so let's give him plenty to forgive. It's an argument we still hear voiced today. It's the heresy of what we call anti-Nemianism, but we won't go into that this morning. Hopefully it doesn't take long to spot the obvious stupidity of the argument. And Paul is vehement in his rebuttal. Absolutely not, he says. When we're justified, we become a new creation. Not immediately perfect, but our lives are transformed as we want to seek to become more Christ-like. Of course, we don't leave our old selves behind instantaneously. It's a a bit like the analogy I used earlier about crossing the road. It takes a long time to break the habits of a lifetime, but with the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, we begin the process of sanctification, of becoming more Christ-like. That's a lifelong work that won't ever be fully completed, this side of glory. But as the process continues, so our desire is to become ever more Christ-like. Aided by the work of the Holy Spirit whose coming we celebrate next weekend at Pentecost. And Paul continues to develop this theme in the closing verses of Galatians chapter 2. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Paul there is expressing how he's been crucified with Christ. His old life of sin, dying with Christ on the cross to be replaced by Christ living in him. The old sinful Paul has been replaced by Christ living in Paul. And then we come to that final verse which sums up everything. I do not set aside the grace of God. Grace, God's unmerited love for us while we were still sinners. I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If we could work our way into heaven, why did Christ, the Son of God, have to die on the cross? It was all in vain if we could just work our way into heaven, work our way into God's good good books. If proof was still needed after all that salvation is by faith, not works, it's there, brothers and sisters, surely, in that last verse. We are justified by faith and by faith alone. We must beware of those who seek to add to the gospel, to proclaim a message that Jesus alone is not sufficient, that something extra is required. This argument was one that racked the early church on numerous occasions. But as we've hopefully come to understand this morning, Jesus and Jesus alone is all sufficient. A few centuries later, it was Martin Luther, Martin Luther who, on reading and rereading Paul's letter to the Romans, reminded the medieval church, the medieval Catholic church, that salvation was by faith alone sole fide, the great rallying cry of the Reformation. Today, the church continues to be riven by division, divisions which threaten to destroy the uniqueness and sufficiency of Christ. We may not argue today about whether Gentile converts need to be circumcised or not to be accepted as Christians, but there are plenty of other topics which divide the church today. As evangelicals, we need to stand firm. We do need to beware a misplaced seal, perhaps sometimes verging on the approach adopted by the Pharisees, but we must at all costs defend the glorious gospel against those who would seek to add requirements to that wonderful, glorious, fantastic good news that we're saved by faith in Christ alone. And where we see such untruth being promoted and believers being led astray, we must stand firm against those who willfully deny the truth of the gospel. We must continue to challenge those who teach false doctrine to lead people astray from the truth of the gospel. And that will be painful, just as it was in the early churches we've seen this morning. As we do so, we must heed Jesus' warning to the one who sought to remove the speck from his brother's eye whilst ignoring the plank in his own and be very careful to ensure that we're not holding on to and ignoring our own heresies. But where we do see either the truth of the gospel being perverted or individuals who are not living the gospel according to the gospel, we're to call that out to challenge those behaviours. It's easy when we feel the church is under attack and going to rack and ruin to feel like the prophet Elijah, isn't it, in 1 Kings 19 who thought he was the last prophet left in Israel. To God revealed that he'd 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to the prophet Baal, slightly different presenting issue then. Our challenge, each one of us here this morning, is to live our lives knowing we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Anyone who tries to add to that message is effectively saying that Christ died in vain. We should stand firm, knowing that we're saved by faith in Christ and faith alone. This is the heart of the matter, the cross of Christ. For it's that, the cross of Christ, that truly sets us free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. Father, help us to know those truths in our lives, to live lives that bring honor and glory to you, and to spread that wonderful message of truth to those who have
0: yet to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.